Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Walter Russell Mead is a fellow in strategy and statesmanship at the Hudson Institute and a regular columnist for the Wall Street Journal. He's also the author of five books on topics ranging from foreign policy during the Bush administration and the guiding philosophies behind American foreign policy. His latest book, The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People, tells the story of American support for Israel over the past two and a half centuries. This week, Walter sits down with my colleague Melanie Marin-Pell to discuss what fuels America and Israel's alliance and why it's important not to take that for granted. Melanie, the mic is yours. Walter, thank you for joining People of the Pod. It's great to be here. Your new book, The Ark of a Covenant, The United States, Israel, and the Fate of the Jewish People, tells the story of the non-Jewish relationship to the state from before its founding to the present day. It has been described as ambitious, as bold, as groundbreaking, and as Yair Rosenberg puts it, quote, part original scholarship, part counterintuitive history, part meditation on American identity, and part debunking of anti-Jewish conspiracy theories. So first, given all of the books that have been written on the U.S.-Israel relationship, tell us what inspired you to write this book. Well, I I guess uh, in the first place, I was troubled by the degree to which so much of the debate over the U.S.-Israel relationship does reflect kind of traditional anti-Semitic tropes and memes, you know, that the Jews control the press and therefore they control politics, or huge bags of Jewish gold, the Benjamins, are driving American politics. And that, uh, because over the last 30 years, I've done a lot of lecturing for the State Department overseas about American foreign policy and found that's even more widespread outside the United States than in it. I really thought it was time for a book that kind of sort of systematically showed why that's not an accurate description of this relationship. But that was sort of original impetus. So why do you think there is that misconception about U.S. support for Israel? We know that there are critics who often blame, as you said, there's conspiracy theories, there's this notion of the pro-Israel lobby, or that there are these sort of dark, shadowy forces at play that are forcing this support for Israel. But in your book, you argue that there really is nothing unique or special about U.S. support for Israel and that it works really like the rest of our foreign policy. Can you explain a little bit about that? One thing to think about is to look at it in terms of history, because most Americans, and frankly, especially most younger Americans, are, you know, assume that America has always been Israel's closest ally. In fact, that without American protection, Israel could never have survived. But if you really look at the history, that doesn't describe it. When Israel was a weak state in the late 40s and 50s, The United States was actually much more interested in pursuing relations with Arab states than with Israel. So we spent much more energy in the 1950s courting Nasser than in Egypt than supporting Israel. In the 1956 Suez crisis, the U.S. actually supported Egypt against Israel and forced Israel to withdraw from the Sinai. 
you know, so the relationship has changed. If the Jews were in charge of American policy about Israel, you'd see America supporting Israel more when Israel was weak. But you actually see the opposite. Israel, as I say in the book, didn't become strong because it had an American alliance. It gained an American alliance because it had grown strong. Can you say a little bit about why you think Israel is so dominant in domestic politics and, and where some of that emanates from? You know, people like to say it's the Jews and the white evangelicals who account for American support for Israel. But about less than 2% of the population is Jewish, and only about 14% of the population are white evangelicals. And of course, both Jews and white evangelicals are not unanimous about their support for Israel. Still, that's 16% of the population. Poll after poll for years and years and years has shown, you know, half or more of the population wanting a pro-Israel policy or feeling sympathetic toward Israel. So these two groups that everybody focuses on account for a third or a fourth of the support. So where is that? What's it coming from? And that's a lot of what I'm looking at in the book. The large number, for example, of American Christians who are not evangelical, who nevertheless see Israel as a good thing and want it to continue. Here, maybe it's worth just thinking about the moment of history when Israel becomes a state. 1944, as the Soviet armies sweep into Poland, for the first time we start seeing real evidence of the Holocaust. I mean, before then there had been reports, there had been stories, but now photographs of the camps, of the victims, just the horror, you know, really hits, begins to hit. And that wasn't, it's not just, oh, how sad, a war crime, but it was, there was this whole hope that came out of the Enlightenment that technological progress and modern liberal society would put to death all the evil in the human spirit, that somehow we would become better as we became more knowledgeable and more advanced. But Germany had been the most advanced country in Europe. Its philosophy, its music, its poetry, its technological achievements in the 19th century had put Germany front and center in the world. And so these horrors could come out of the most advanced, quote, enlightened country in the world. Well, what does that say about human nature? And what does it say about the future? So you have that. Then 1945, the war ends with the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Again, this species that we've just learned it has not reformed at all, still has this deep evil, capacity for evil in its soul, now has possessed weapons that could destroy the world, could bring an end to life. We're all still living with those two realizations. They still form the background of the thinking of lots of people. And so the threat of devastation for climate change or other things only grown over the years. Then 1948, Israel becomes independent defeats Arab countries that are much larger than it. For Christians in America, this looks like proof that even in this dangerous, terrible world that we now live in of 
utter evil and of nuclear weapons, God is at work. The God of the Bible is still there. Christian theologians in America for well over 200 years, back into the 1600s, had been interpreting the Bible to mean that in the future, the Jews would return to the biblical, their, their biblical homeland sometime in the future. And so when this starts happening, it looks to people as if this demonstrates that God is still acting in history. Scary as everything looks, hopeless as everything looks, God is still there so we can hope. This association, I think, powerfully resonates to this day among tens of millions of Americans who may not agree with everything Israel does, who are by no means fundamentalist or evangelical in their theology, but who just feel that Israel is a sign of hope for the world. It's so interesting. And in your book, you also discuss that relationship between morality and foreign policy. And you're alluding to that here, but we also know that invariably sometimes our values and our interests may not always be fully aligned when we're conducting foreign policy. So can you go a little more into that relationship between the moral arguments related to Israel, both pro and con, the sort of pro-Zionist and anti-Zionist moral arguments that are made and how that plays out in the context of U.S. policy toward Israel? Well, I think we've got to distinguish. There are pro-Zionist arguments, there are anti-Zionist arguments. There's this third group, I call them pro-Palestinian arguments, which are not so much, or it's not necessarily there should not be a state of Israel, but that Palestinians are also human beings. If Jews have national rights, Palestinians have national rights. So we have these three groups of arguments circulating in American politics. And in 1922, 100 years ago this year, Congress almost unanimously enacted the Balfour Declaration into American law, the Lodge Fish Act. And this was bipartisan. And the Lodge Fish Act, you know, said that we favor the establishment of a Jewish homeland in Palestine, but without, you know, interfering with the rights of the others who live there. So we've had, I think, a hundred-year bipartisan consensus in America that there should be a Jewish state, but that the Palestinians also have rights, and this needs to be addressed in some way. So how to do that, how to fit that objective in with other issues is complicated. But the relationship of morality and politics is always complicated. As I write in the book, that probably the single most important decision ever made in the United States that contributed to the establishment of Israel was the 1924 law essentially banned Jewish migration from Europe to the United States. I mean, it was not directed against Jews, but the way the law worked with quotas and ceilings and so on essentially closed the door in America to mass Jewish immigration from Europe. Before that law, over 90% of Jews who left Europe went to the United States. Only a, an infinitesimal number actually went to Palestine. And had the Jews of Europe had the option of immigrating to the United States in the 20s and especially in the 30s, 
it's very unlikely that there would have ever been a large enough Jewish population in Palestine to create a state. So in that sense, one of the, what you might say is one of the acts of American law that had the worst consequences for the Jewish people also was the cornerstone of the establishment of Israel. And this, this I think, just tells you just how difficult it is to interpret what's moral, what's immoral, where history is going, what does it mean. It's often the case that when we try to build our foreign policy on a basis of morality, while you should never neglect or ignore morality, that doesn't always lead to wise policy or successful policy. I'm glad you mentioned this notion of a a, a third vantage point, and I, I think it's such an important point that being pro-Israel does not mean one is anti-Palestinian. Being pro-Palestinian should not automatically mean one is anti-Israel, that we should be looking for solutions that elevate and respect two peoples, two narratives, because both are valid and both are critically important. Do you think, given all of what you've learned and what you've studied from history, do you think moving forward the U.S. should continue to play a role? Is it our place to be involved in the continued advancement of an attempt to create some sort of resolution between Israelis and Palestinians? You know, I actually spend a fair amount of the book looking at the history of the peace process because American involvement in the peace process is a much stranger thing than most people realize in that there's been no diplomatic effort by the United States that's been this intense, this long-lived in all of our history as this effort to bring about peace between Israelis and Palestinians. It's generated a lot more process than peace. And I would say we're now further away from uh, Israeli-Palestinian agreement now than we were 20 years ago. But one of the things that did strike me looking at the history is we should try not to think of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute as this unique thing that is different from all other international questions. In some ways, it's actually quite typical That is a dispute between two peoples over land. It's very much like the dispute of the Greeks and the Turks in Cyprus, or of the Serbs and the Albanians over Kosovo, and many, many other disputes of this kind. If you look around the world, what you see is that these disputes are almost never solved by a mutually agreed solution that both sides agree is fair. What usually happens is, now there have been exceptions like Germany really has kind of given up Alsace-Lorraine so far as we know. The Japanese still want their islands back from Russia. The Pakistanis are still angry about Kashmir. These things don't settle easily. What settles them is when an outside power sort of comes in and says, okay, everybody, here's the line, and anybody who crosses it, we're going to smash. So, you know, the Soviet Union takes over the Caucasus, and the Armenians and the Azerbaijanis stop fighting. But when the Soviets leave, the fight starts up again. When Tito was able to say to the Serbs and the Croats, anybody fights around here, you know, I'm going to come down like a hammer on you, they all stop. But when that overarching power is gone, 
all the quarrels come back up. So in that sense, if the U.S. had really wanted to, you know, solving this issue or at least imposing a peace was our goal, we would have taken over the region and just said, okay, you stop this, you stop that. Here's the line. And if you don't like it, tough, you know, live in it. But we are not willing or I think able to do that. You'll notice that the peace process was the most successful at the times that American power was highest in the Middle East and the world. And with the fall of the Soviet Union, suddenly both the Palestinians and the Israelis are more interested in what the United States thinks should happen. And all during the 90s, that period of unipolarity, you know, Washington, Washington, we might not have been as powerful as an imperial ruler, but we were kind of close to it. And so, it, you know, people were afraid to cross us and they would at least pretend to go along, even if they kind of secretly weren't that convinced by what we wanted to do. Do you see that the strength of the U.S. projection of power around the world is negatively impacted by the polarization here at home. Are we perceived differently today, given that we seem so fractured, so polarized, so unable to operate in a bipartisan fashion, whereas that used to be the norm and now appears to be the exception? This is one of the most prominent topics of conversation in every government around the world. Because other people look at us and they say, you elected Bush and then you had this kind of policy. Then you elect Obama, you do something completely different. Then you elect Trump and you do something totally different from that. Now you elect Biden and you're off in another direction. So what's next? You can elect Noam Chomsky. Are you going to reelect Trump? We have no idea what you people are going to do next. Therefore, nothing any American president says carries as much weight as it used to. And that is true whether you have a right-wing president or a left-wing president or anything else. Our internal divisions have dramatically diminished our reach overseas. And this means, for example, I think President Biden has very wisely understood there's not a lot he can do about the Israeli-Palestinian negotiation. The Palestinians don't really think the Americans can deliver. And the Israelis don't see any reason why they should do something they don't want to do because of the Americans. We're more worried, I think, now in the Middle East that some of these countries will start looking to Russia or China, which would be terrible for us. If we want to be an effective voice in some of these questions, we have to come to terms ourselves with our divisions. One helpful thing would be that in the future, It would be a good thing if presidents would invite senators from the other party to come with them or to join negotiating teams. You know, people often criticize Woodrow Wilson for not bringing Republicans to the Paris peace negotiations in 1919. Maybe it would be better if we went back to that practice so that people would understand that we're speaking with one voice. I think an exception is probably China where people do see a real bipartisan consensus where Trump and Biden, their policies in many ways look quite similar. And people listen to Republicans, they listen to Democrats, and they hear some very similar concerns about China. We don't have that on the Middle East right now. 
And that deeply weakens our ability to affect events. You have a line in your book where you said, quote, the single most important thing about Israel that most Americans do not understand is that the Jewish state was founded on a reasonable and historically justified skepticism about the ability of the liberal order to protect Jews, end quote. So as we close out, what does that mean for us today? Should the Jewish community, uh, how should we interpret that? It's a very good and profound question. This was the core of Herzl's message to the Jews of Europe, that, that all of these beautiful enlightened values, the wonderful anti-Dreyfusards or Dreyfusards in, in France, the Zolas and all the people fighting for Jewish acceptance and assimilation, it's very nice. We can't help but love them. But if we depend on them, we're all gonna die. That was literally Herzl's message. And it's interesting if you think about it, Israel is basically composed of Jews for whom Herzl was right. And America is composed of Jews for whom Herzl was wrong, at least so far, right? And that helps, I think, explain a lot of the differences and tensions between Israeli Jewish thinking and American Jewish thinking. But I think it also, for American Jews, there is always that question, for how long will Herzl be wrong? And they see, I mean, the waves of anti-Semitism that we now see in the far right and in the far left, everything from Jewish kids being harassed on campuses in various ways to synagogues being attacked and unbelievable stuff coming up on the internet and so on is, is horrifying and to a certain degree terrifying. My own sense for what it's worth is that anti-Semitism in American history has come and gone in waves and has never so far reached the levels it reached in some European countries. And usually after a peak, it subsides. And we saw this around the 1850s and 60s, again in the 80s and 90s, in the 1930s and 40s, which is probably when anti-Semitism in America reached its highest peak. These were all periods of stress in America. The pre-Civil War years coinciding with a large Jewish immigration from Germany, the 80s and 90s of the Industrial Revolution, populism, these things, the 1880s and 90s, then the 1930s and 40s, the Depression, the transition to World War II. In those periods, a lot of Americans were beginning to doubt whether America worked, whether the ideas and perceptions behind American identity were true. And because American acceptance of Jews and the place of Jews in America is related to a certain idea of what kind of country we are and what kind of people we are, when people start to lose faith in those ideals and perceptions, then the door is open to the kinds of anti-Semitism that's always sort of rattling around like the crazy ant in the attic and is always a danger. So I think we are now in a period of stress like those other ones, and we're seeing a similar phenomenon. Well, it means that we at AJC have our work cut out for us indeed. We will always have much more work to do. We could talk with you all day. 
But for now, we will thank you and encourage everyone to read your extraordinary book, which we certainly hope many people will read and absorb because you're asking these incredibly profound questions. You're telling these incredibly profound, important aspects of this history that many of us really can learn so much from. And we are so grateful to you for your time and for your scholarship. And we thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod. 